Does manual treasury management and operations have your crypto business stuck in the slow lane? Scale up and speed ahead with Fireblocks, the number one platform for crypto operations and trading pros that makes custody, settlement, and rebalancing quick and easy. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all of their crypto assets in one place. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. I'd also like to give a shout out to Cross River. Whether you're a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API-based platform provides the payment solutions you need to grow. A CryptoFin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking at crossriver.com crypto. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Frank Chaporo, Director of News at The Block. And joining us today on the other side of the mic is my guest and good friend, Anthony Scaramucci. This is his third time on the show. So we're going to bring the energy. We're going to ask some tough questions, keep him on his feet. He's the founder and managing partner at Skybridge Capital and, of course, the founder of SALT. And for folks who maybe were sitting under a rock these past few weeks, they had an incredible conference down in the Bahamas. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about the brutal haircut that I got that has revealed my grays and the markets. Anthony, how's it going? Well, listen, you got a promise from Ryan Salam, the co-CEO of FTX, that your next haircut in the Bahamas is going to be better than your last haircut, Frank. So I thought that was pretty good. I mean, that's definitely one thing that will get me back there. He, he said that they're going to send someone up to my room and really take care of me, maybe yeah, do see, like the I, nice- see, I was also virtue signaling right there, if you caught that, just to let you know that I listen to your podcast, okay? And it's obviously a great show. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And it's great to have you on. So, I mean, it was so interesting kind of seeing you in your element, Anthony. It was almost like I felt like I was back at my Uncle Nino's for a 4th of July barbecue, you know, you were tending to the guests. You were, I think you mentioned you taste tested all of the food to make sure it was up to quality. A lot of it. This is your, this is your baby. Yeah. Come on. The other thing I was doing is I was monitoring the air conditioning. Okay. I mean, just, I want you to think about that. I didn't want anybody too hot or too cold. I was like the mama bear air conditionist. But then of course we had to go outside and check the, uh, the bar scene, make sure we had the right liquor beer, wine, and soda, all that stuff. I mean, listen, you know, I have a biannual bar mitzvah, Frank. Okay. This is my 18th bar mitzvah. You know, I'm an Italian kid that lived in a Jewish neighborhood. So 
you know, I used to get very jealous when I was 13 at all these bar mitzvahs, you know, so I decided what the hell, I might as well have a saw conference this way I can, I can channel that bar mitzvah theater and atmosphere. So tell us a little bit about how salt came to fruition. We, we talked about it behind the scenes at the conference. I'm sure you've talked about it ad nauseum at this point, but for folks who maybe are unaware, it emerged out of the financial crisis. You wanted to revitalize the Los Angeles conference scene. Tell us a little bit about the origin story there. Yeah, it was actually Vegas. So what ended up happening was uh, we were getting annihilated. I mean, this is my eighth bear market but I'll go back to my fifth bear market, was, which was the global financial crisis. So since I started in the industry, I have uh, experienced eight near-death experiences. And so having Gallo's humor in March of 2009, I was calling Skybridge, the firm I founded, No Bridge, the blown-up bridge, the bridge to nowhere. The S&P had gotten dragged down to, I think, 666, the Dow was at 6,500. Barack Obama was on the airwaves, the new president saying, hey, now's not the time to go to Las Vegas. We just gave out billions of dollars of TARP money to all the nation's banks to save them, although they didn't save Lehman Brothers. And so one after the other, all these big banks, Frank, were canceling their conferences. So 13 short years ago, my colleagues and I looked at that and said, okay, there's an opportunity here. These conferences are being canceled. We can host the conference. We can fill that void. Now, I don't think the president did it on purpose, but when you say now's not the time to go to Vegas, yes, you're landing the plane of a fat cat, but you're also interrupting the career of a middle-class employee at a hotel, You know, mm -hmm. whether it's a, a maid, a bartender, a bellhop, a, a waiter, a busboy. Uh, all of that business was going down. So I've cold-called the mayor of the city of Las Vegas. And I asked them for some help. They introduced me to Steve Wynn. We did our first conference at Wynn Resorts. We did subsequent conferences due to the size of them at the Bellagio. And then we took the thing on the road. We did the conference in Abu Dhabi. We did it in Singapore twice, Tokyo once. And then because of COVID, I had to move the conference out of Las Vegas into the Javits Center mm -hmm. in New York, where last September, right before the UN General Assembly, uh, we went to the uh, sort of the VIP extension area, the Javits Center, and we hosted an event there. I got Sam uh, Bankman-Fried through a mutual friend. I got introduced to him. This is one of the all-time best stories, okay? I just want you to picture this. I have no idea who Sam Bankman-Fried is. And my buddy says, yeah, it's a young kid. He's a crypto trader out of Hong Kong. He wants to talk to you. Can I set you up on a Zoom? In comes Sam with the fro and the, you know, the, the headset on, you know, and it's nine o'clock at night. I'm looking at him. I'm like, okay. And then he <laughs> proceeds to tell me that he's going to name the Miami arena after his company. And he's going to do some things related to that. He's looking at an MLB deal, heard about our conference. Could he sponsor the conference? Okay. And then apropos to who Sam is as a guy, I'm like, yeah, of course you can sponsor the conference. He says, okay, I'll go for the top sponsorship. I said, okay, no problem. He says, hey, can you send me the wiring instructions? I said, yeah, okay, no problem. He wires me the money, I think, before we sign the agreement. Okay, and so I'm like, okay, this guy is for me. Okay, there's an expression on Wall Street, Frank, which I know you're familiar with, fast pay makes fast friends, right? <laughs> and so he wires me the money. 
I said, okay, this guy is my kind of guy. We set up a nice pavilion for him with his events team. He shows up at the event, having a good time, meeting a lot of people. I invite him to one of my VIP dinners where I have these one table conversations. And now I'm going to do some shameless name dropping. Okay. So try not to throw up. Yeah. Try not to throw, try not to throw up in your microphone. So there we are with the owner of the Mets, a good friend of mine, Steve Cohen, Dan Loeb from Third Point, H.R. McMaster, the former National Security Advisor, John Kelly, former White House Chief of Staff who fired my ass, uh, who we became very close friends with, uh, the Chief Investment Officer from Abu Dhabi. And we have this whole slow, slew of people. We're having this one table conversation. Sam's sitting next to me. Kevin O'Leary's sitting next to him. Sam turns to me and says, hey, how, how do you know all these people? I'm like, well, Sam, I'm like twice your age, okay? And I've got, uh, I've got these relationships which I built over three decades. And he says, wow, this is great. This is really cool. And um, he got up. I got up. We shook hands. About a week after the conference, we had a conversation. And he's like, you know, we should do more together. I think we could do a lot more. I said, well, let me get my conference uh, team. One of my partners who helps me run that events business. His name is John Darcy. He's way more than just the conference. He's a business mm-hmm. development guy, a new products guy, client relationship guy. Uh, he met with Sam's team. And then John really came up with the idea. He came to me and said, listen, we can have FDX sponsor our conference in New York, the one in Abu Dhabi, the one in Singapore. But what about going to the Bahamas? It is now their new corporate headquarters, their global headquarters. What about doing a specific cryptocurrency, blockchain, NFT conference in the Bahamas? And I said, well, not only would I like that, but I toured, you may recall, Mm -hmm. the Bahamar Hotel, thinking about moving our conference from Las Vegas to there. And I thought the venue was spectacular. Yeah, I said, John, it's an awesome idea. Mention it to Sam and his team. If they want to do it, I'm good to go. And so he said, they're good to go. January, I think it was the Martin Luther King birthday weekend, I flew down there, stayed at the Bahamar, met with the senior executives there. And then I had a very famous two-hour walk with Sam. Okay, so I heard your podcast with Ryan. So they have these like nondescript suburban offices that they're living in right now until they move over to their big corporate office that he very eloquently described to you. So I show But it up looks at, like somewhere on Long Island. Oh no, it's it's ridiculous. It's like these beige offices and there's more parking than there are offices. <laughs> yeah. And I, I pull up in this like black car, this SUV that the Rosewood Hotel's given me. I turned to the driver, I said, you know, I'll probably be a half hour. I don't know. I'm gonna go see Sam. I walk in. The smell of fast food Chinese is mm-hmm. in one room. Pizza boxes are in another. I'm like, okay, I love these people. Okay, they just, just they just rolled their dorm room into yeah. these corporate offices to make themselves billions of dollars. God bless them. To make it at FTX, you've got to have six computer screens in front of you, Frank. Yeah. Okay, you and I couldn't make it because I only have one computer screen. And- I'm waiting in the lobby. Sam walks out. Let me show you the place. Shows me the place. Oh, by the way, we don't really have a conference room. Is it okay if we walk the parking lot? 
I'm like, yeah, I'm a little bit of a fatty. I could use the exercise. So I totally. get, I get with him in the parking lot and we now walk in a clockwise direction around these three or four office buildings. And we talk about everything. We talk sports, politics, cryptocurrency, businesses. We talk literally about everything. And I said, listen, you know, we'll team up with you guys. I'm a big believer in collaboration. Let's make this a destination for everybody. Mm-hmm. And one thing I love, I mean, many things I love about Sam, but the, the number one thing I love about Sam is if he thinks you've got a good sense for what you're doing, he leaves you alone. He's a, he's, he's a decentralized manager in a decentralized uh, business known as the blockchain. So I give him a lot of credit for that. And so my team interface with Ryan, as you know, Brad Harrison, all these different guys, their events people, and that's how this thing came about. And that's that's a uh, a tribute to them. I really wanted it to be their conference because uh, it's their home. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things about Skybridge and my team, not only are we collaborators, but if I'm going to Abu Dhabi, I want that group of people that were teamed up with in Abu Dhabi to get the most out of it. It doesn't have to be the Scaramucci conference, the Skybridge conference, the SALT conference. It really needs to be about the people we're teaming up with because that's part of it, you know? And uh, the ownership that they took in that conference, and I think the pride they had in that conference, FDX, the Bahamian nation, was second to none. I think it was, a you know, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but my reaction to it, and even though I was behind this, you know, I thought it was a spectacular event for people. And I say that with a great deal of pride because I can't take any credit for it. My team, the FDX people, the help from the Bahamian government, the Bahamar people, they're the ones that, that put it together. You know, if anything, I, I get the privilege to go there and get an opportunity to speak and, and be interviewed, you know, but I, I have to tell you, I was, I was blown away by what happened. And, and uh, I was encouraged to hear Ryan saying, although he said it to me privately, but he also said it on your podcast, let's take over the whole goddamn hotel next time. So I'm excited to do that with them as well. Well, it speaks to just how massive this space has become from a, maybe not an asset perspective, but from an interest perspective. It's something that everyone is thinking about. It's on the front page of the Wall Street Journal the good, bad, and ugly almost mm-hmm. every single day. Mm-hmm. And it's now become almost core not only to SALT, but to Skybridge as well. I think you yeah. talked to Bloomberg about how you want to grow the business to almost triple in size on the crypto well, side. I mean, you know, you know, you I'm very fond of you for a number of different reasons. You're a great writer. You've got your finger on the pulse of a lot of the things. You get a great podcast. But, you know, you were one of the first podcasts that I went on when I started to move into crypto. I remember that mustache that you had, you know, I felt like I was talking to a porn star from the 1970s. Yeah, you were like, I'm going to find you on page six one day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you definitely had that look about you. Um, But, you know, I remember our first podcast vividly because what I was saying to you is in order for me to be the success that I would like to be. I have to be neurally plastic, right? Your brain has to grow. I'm closing in on 60, Frank. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be that old fuddy-duddy that has no understanding of the future. Uh, I want your generation to take me into the future, and I want to learn from your generation. But the flip side, 
and I would say this to everybody that's a contemporary of yours, there's things that you guys could learn from us. You know, I don't, I don't like the generational grudge match that I observe where the, the 27 year olds think, Oh my God, these guys are dinosaurs. They have no nothing about the future. And, uh, can't learn anything from them. And I don't like the 60-year-olds looking at the 27-year-olds and saying, oh my God, these guys are so inexperienced. I can't learn anything from them. You know, there's this sort of generational grudge match. Yeah. I want to create a generational fusion where I want people to avail themselves to some of my ups and downs and my life experience and my ability to bear through and withstand these horrific bear markets. And I want to learn about where you guys are going to take the world of finance because we're operating on a rail system that got really developed after the Federal Reserve was created in 1913. So if you look at the payment systems, the transfer payment systems in our country, a lot of them are still run on 1970-styles mainframes and computer programs, frankly. And the third-party intermediaries have been necessary in the world of finance since the beginning of finance. And here you are now, we have this unbelievable innovation, this technological platform where we can start to interact with each other face-to-face, peer-to-peer, without permission from any third party. And this is going to be an unbelievably powerful delayering mechanism for a society. And so I think I may have given you this example, but I'll give it to you again because we're now in a podcast situation. So many things are going to happen that we can't even anticipate. You know, it's like it's like going back to 1998, logging into your AOL account, and then having somebody come from the future 24 years later and say, "Well, you know, everything's going to be connected to the net, including your TV, and there's going to be billions of people streaming 4K video over what looks like this." Uh, you know, slow moving thing known as the internet. And so, mm-hmm. so that's going to happen in the world of DeFi and the world of finance. Your, your generation is going to make that happen. I want to be a part of it. I want to, I want to share in that, at least at this point in my career. I think it's tough for certain people of maybe of your generation, but even just across Wall Street, across different age groups to see through, or rather to see the forest through the trees because of all of the risks and scary things that happen in crypto on a daily basis. So to understand that promise of what the future holds, you have to kind of stomach the near-term, short-term volatility. I imagine there are so many people, and, and you see it on Twitter, uh, the crypto skeptics and critics doing you know self-congratulatory laps around the Luna meltdown. But it does speak to the inherent risks that do exist in crypto. But I guess you could flip that on its head and say, well, you know, is Wall Street any better if you look at how the financial crisis happened, the the lack of transparency and the opaque nature of mortgage-backed securities and other complex derivative structures. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting, right? Because I think from the crypto side of things, we like to think of ourselves as being this next-gen financial system but we have to sort of grapple with things like USD depegging and completely unraveling and then trying to convince people, oh, wait, no, actually, like, you can trust this. It's, it's inherently trustless despite sort of these, these issues. Yeah, so there's a lot, lot there. Let me just start out by saying that uh, your generation is going to show people that decentralizing 
finance or anything associated with decentralization is inherently anti-fragile. Uh, what we're going to find is that uh, centralizing things uh, always comes with impact. So if you have a central bank and you have an oligopoly of banks, if there's a banking crisis, they're going to topple into each other and they're going to need some form of a bailout. Uh, governments, if they're autocratic and centralized, they have a tendency to get corrupt and they have a tendency to topple themselves. The U.S. government, whatever levels of corruption there might be or what levels of cynicism in the government, it's one of the more decentralized governmental properties in the world. If you think about the House and the Judiciary, the Congress, mm -hmm. uh, Senate, and the presidency, and then also the local state and local governments, very decentralized. And so it's no wonder that it's the oldest living Republican democracy, right? It's 246 years old for a reason. Can't take it for granted, however, but it is durable because of its anti-fragility as a result of its decentralization. So you look at something like Terra Luna, it blows up, wipes out $18 billion worth of value, $700 billion of value in the cryptocurrency markets are wiped out. Value from November, arguably over a trillion, $1.2 trillion of value wiped out. So, so when you stop and you say all of that, what I would submit back to you is imagine $1.2 trillion wiped out of the central banking network, the money center banks. Imagine the people's hair that would be on fire and people running around in circles declaring the need for the government to bail them out. So in a decentralized thing, people own their own thing. They themselves are probably suffering. They themselves are hit depending on how much money they put into this, but you haven't caused a systemic breakdown or a systemic collapse. So if you are a regulator that is more focused on doing the right or wrong things and not the left or right things or the political things, you'd have to look at decentralization and say, oh my God, this is incredibly powerful. We need to figure out a way to propitiously regulate it, make it fair. Uh, and we have to figure out a way to allow it to evolve here in the United States so the U.S. can maintain its mantle of leadership as it relates to financial services. So, so yeah, we had a train wreck last week, yet in that train wreck, four to $5 billion of Bitcoin's value was sold immediately in the market in a desperate attempt to mm. peg something known as a stable coin. It was inherently unstable, though, because if you're trying to offer up something that's stable with an 80 vol instrument like Bitcoin, that makes it definitionally impractical. Our research team wrote about it, said we were worried about it. Again, that doesn't make us fortune tellers or anything like that. It's just, you know, an observation that we were making. We didn't, thankfully, we didn't own any of it because of it, but we were affected by it because it took down our, our entire portfolio and it also reverberated through the Dow. But no systemic crash, Frank, no systemic oh my God, the system is under stress and the system's going to fail. In 2008, without Federal Reserve intervention, probably six or seven banks would have failed. Goldman Sachs got himself in a little bit of trouble because they were claiming they were never going to fail, but they left out of the fact that they had all of these credit default swap options with AIG uh, and that if the government didn't step in with the $180 billion to clear those transactions, 
they were on the hook for that. So, you know, listen, I'm humbled by markets. I've been humbled by life. I've been wrong about a lot of things. And obviously people will criticize Skybridge for owning Bitcoin at 69,000. It's now 30,000. What I love about people is everybody's a long-term investor, Frank, till they have short-term losses. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to second guess their money manager. Uh, but for me, I think the macro trend is so bright and the future is so bright that if you just have the patience and the fortitude to see yourself to that future, um, we're, we're, we're in a generational changing industry. And, but with that comes volatility and some uncertainty because it's so new. You know, the expression about opinions. Yes. It's like a, it's like a bungy hole. Everyone yeah. has one. Yes. <laughs> Having trouble keeping pace with the crypto boom? When your business is scaling up and your portfolio is growing, you don't want to waste precious time on manual treasury management or settling and rebalancing. Fireblocks can handle that for you with smart, scalable solutions for your crypto business, along with industry-leading security and expertise. They'll take care of the back end so you can focus on the big picture. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all their crypto assets in one place. Coinbase Prime fully integrates crypto trading and custody on a single platform and gives clients the best all-in pricing in their network using their proprietary smart order router and algorithmic execution. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have already used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Build a unified investment portfolio with one of the most trusted names in crypto. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. This episode is brought to you by Cross River. Building the next big thing in crypto? Then it's time to get your fiat on and off ramp solution from Cross River. Whether you're a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API based platform provides the payment solutions you need to grow. Cross River is powering the future of financial services. A CryptoFin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking. Request your fiat on and off-ramp solution now at crossriver.com slash crypto. So let's talk about the macro environment. When you first came into the market, when you first, you know, graced the scoop with your presence back in 2020, it was, it was incredibly different. I mean, there was the Fed you know, was in a different position. Monetary policy was very loose. Rates were low. And you kind of came out, you know, gate crashed the space and said, here is something that I see as being akin to gold, a digital gold. Now we're in a much different environment. Bitcoin itself is acting way more like a US tech stock than it is a digital gold in terms of the way it's moving, but also the macro environment's a lot, very different from where it was. What does that mean for crypto? So, you know, I have a different take on some of this stuff. Maybe it's my 
years in the business or maybe because I'm a newbie to crypto because you're, you know, you, you know, maybe you got in there earlier than me. Um, Satoshi created this thing. You tell me. It was Satoshi, Hal, then Frank. Yeah, well, there you go. Or there you go. So it was a 2009. I don't know. Something like that, right? 1976. Yeah. Okay. There you go. (laughs) All right. But you know, the point I'm making is I'm, I'm coming in in 2020. I'm a traditional finance person. And so I'm looking at this saying, okay, well, wait a minute. It's not digital gold. It's not an inflation hedge. Could it be those things? Yes. If you got Bitcoin to a, a, a billion wallets, a billion and a half wallets, and it's scaled, and it, as a result of which the volatility dampens, then yes, it could be. But it's not that today. And you know, again, I like using Amazon as an example because it's so apropos, very volatile as it's getting started. Uh, very uncertain in the beginning, lots of doubters. Uh, you you put a $10,000 investment in Amazon at its peak. So Amazon goes public May 15th, 1997. That's 25 years ago. At its peak last year, that $10,000 investment's worth $21 million. Uh, today, at current prices, I think it's worth about fourteen. dollars uh, Yet, you would have had to have suffered through eight periods of time down fifty. One period of time down 95, and people were ready to write it off when it went down 95. That sort of feels like Coinbase right now. Coinbase is getting destroyed. It's brutal. Uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin's gotten halved. And so, what ends up happening is when that happens, a lot of people capitulate. I got my hands burned on the stove. I'm never going to be a part of this again, and I'm moving on. But what I would say to people, what this is, is an early adopting technical asset. Well, Anthony, it's 12 years old. Okay, we'll go back to Amazon. If Amazon got taken public in 1997, in 2009, it dropped 55, 60%. If you bought it then, you're 64X on the money that you invested in 2009 if you had the fortitude to buy it then. But now Amazon is institutionally owned. It's very broadly positioned institutionally, the S&P 500, et cetera. And so Amazon's very stable. Look at the volatility on Amazon today compared to where it was 15 years ago, 10 years ago. And you get my point. I think that's going to be Bitcoin. Bitcoin's scaling. Bitcoin has reached escape velocity. You may not like Bitcoin. You may be Warren Buffett and think it's rat poison. You may be Charlie Munger and think it's venereal disease or the worst thing that's happened to the civilization. Uh, but it's, it's already scaling. It, it's reached escape velocity. Glassnode uh, last month, said there's probably 240 million wallets and approximately 130 million global owners of Bitcoin. Okay, that's going up. You know, I know buddies of mine at very large institutions that unfortunately for right now have to remain nameless due to confidentiality that are gearing up and ready to pounce on the Bitcoin Cash ETF. Mm -hmm. Now, when is that going to happen? I don't know. I'll say something contrarian. I think the grayscale guys will probably get theirs approved because the SEC, or all the knocks on the SEC, they're supposed to be, and I believe they still are, a client-centric, customer-focused, what's in the best interest of the customer. Uh, Before the SEC is going to be a trust that's trading at a 30% discount with 2% fees. They're moving to a market-based ETF number. I don't know if that's 60 to 80 basis points, but it's a very sharp fee reduction. And if it gets approved, you're going to 
close a 30% discount, which represents about $8 billion to the underlying customer, the underlying investor. And so at this point, given the saturation and the maturity of the market, Bitcoin's not being manipulated. Um, and I think that there's less evidence of that. And I think the SEC will be comfortable with it. If that happens, Frank, that is a floodgate opening. That's okay, the because, game changer in your view, because I think a yes. lot of people would, you know, listen to this yes. conversation and argue. But Anthony, the the institutions are already here. That's probably that probably explains why crypto has become so correlated to stocks and bonds, because it's the same guys trading the same stuff. Yeah, but it isn't because because you don't have the big players in, you don't have the wirehouses in. You know, let's say that I'm a private wealth manager. That's how I got my career started at Goldman. Mm -hmm. And you are, a, uh, you just sold your business for $500 million. I'm in a solicitation. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, if it was 30 years ago, I'm offering you a 60-40 stock and bond portfolio, maybe a municipal bond ladder. Mm -hmm. uh, today, I've got private equity in there. I've got hedge funds in there, a world of alternatives. But right now, I don't have a digital strategy. I don't have a digital currency or a digital asset strategy. Why? Well, my compliance department is telling me, you know, wait, you know, we don't know what the you need federal a government's going to, right. But the moment the cash ETF happens, I want you to just think about this, like just look at a Jack Nash uh, game theory analysis. Mm -hmm. Okay. Just take a, take a look at it for one second. You're going to be from a strategy point of view, every major wirehouse is going to have to flood into that space, every single one of them. You know, there's no way they can't because, because now I'm in that solicitation. You turn to me and say, okay, I just sold my business for 500 million. What's your digital asset strategy? Well, I don't have one. We're negative on it. You're, you're going to have to, you know, no, no way because you'll go to the next guy. You'll go to the Wells Fargo. You'll go to the JP Morgan. And so once everybody has it, you know, and again, Let's talk just specifically about Bitcoin. There's 21 million coins, Frank. You know at least one, possibly two million coins were lost in the early adoption phases. They're on people's Blackberries and clunky laptops somewhere, right? Boating accidents happen. Bo whatever the hell it might be, right? But you also know there's uh, less than two million coins left to be mined. So let's just do the math together. 21 minus two is 19. Let's say there's a million or two that are not there. There's probably 17 million coins out there. And on 17 million coins, Frank, there's there's 55 million global millionaires. We don't even have enough coins for each millionaire to have one coin, right? So you know if a firm like BlackRock or a firm like Goldman or Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley really got into the space. Now, let me just point out one last thing. While we were in the Bahamas, Fidelity announced that they're going to allow for Bitcoin exposure in their mm -hmm. 401k programs. And so we did a call with them last week. We're onboarding Fidelity's 401k program into SkyBridge. They're going to have a Bitcoin offering in that 401k program. Uh, there's $7 trillion of assets and retirement funds known as 401ks. Fidelity controls $2.7 trillion of those, Frank. Fidelity is about to do for Bitcoin what it did for the mutual fund and the U.S. equity markets when the 401k programs came into the existence in the 1980s. The under ownership of stocks born from the Great Depression still lived 
in the 1980s. And Fidelity pushed that into people's accounts successfully for them and successfully for Fidelity. They're about to do that to Bitcoin. So, So to me, I look at Bitcoin right now getting destroyed by the Terra Luna debacle the flood of selling that hit Bitcoin, and yet Bitcoin still hovering at around 30,000. I see that as a major win. I see that as a, as a sticky situation. You know, and, I, and I see that as uh, buyers, are there incrementally more buyers or incrementally more sellers? And I'm giving you many examples of why I believe they're incrementally more buyers than there are sellers. Yeah. The degree to which it's underinvested across RIA channels, 401k channels, wealth management channels is one tailwind for price to go up. But there's also this broader macro headwind. If we are possibly hurtling towards some form of recession, whether economic or you know an earnings recession, some form of a downturn, right? I think the former CEO of Goldman Sachs came out earlier this week and said that- Yeah, he was on the Face chance, the Nation. Yep. Yeah, Lloyd Blank very, Blank. very, very strong chance of mm-hmm. a recession. And then the firm's Christian Muller Glissman said that they were downgrading equities to neutral, given the sort of a potential stagflationary macro mm-hmm. momentum environment mm-hmm. with equities and bonds both being vulnerable- What does this mean for crypto? I mean, clearly, not to ask a leading question, it seems bad, but this would be Bitcoin's first true recession. And it was born out of a previous one. How does it it fare in a recession? Well, I mean, it's linked right now to risk assets. So it's linked right now to the NASDAQ. And so it's already corrected 50-ish percent, let's call it, more than 50 if you want to just measure from the tippy top. And so if you look at ARK and you look at some of these NASDAQ holdings, they're down anywhere from 50 mm-hmm. to 70%. If you look at the FANG stocks, which are broadly owned, they're down at least 20, although some of them are bouncing off of that right now. And so what I would say to you is I think the correction has already happened I think the flood of selling and the capitulation has already happened. And I think the loose holders of this sort of stuff have been shaken out of it. And so if I'm right about long-term growth and I'm right about the long-term fundamentals, when the macro environment improves, this stuff is going to do very well. So let's just talk 30 seconds about the macro environment. The macro environment has been disrupted by several different things. One, COVID-19. Let me tell you the predictions I got wrong. I thought by the middle of 2022, we would be well past COVID and we would be in a consumption-based boom. We have a booming economy in many respects, but we're not well past COVID. I myself just got COVID as an example, uh, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people are getting it. It's a more mild form of it, but it is slowing things down. And I got that wrong. Number two, if you had asked me in November or December when Vladimir Putin was amassing troops on the Ukrainian border, was he going to invade the Ukraine? I would have said, well, that's going to be catastrophic for him to do that. And so the answer to that he is He can't no. be that stupid. Yes, he's not going to invade the media. So I got that wrong. And then the third thing that I got wrong, if you said to me that the inflation was going to be transitory, 
I would have said, yes, the inflation is going to be transitory because it's born from COVID-19 and it's born from the disruption of the supply chain and the induction of all this money that we put into the world, you know, through PPP and stimulus to keep people going. Once that filters through the economy, the positivity of technology, the deflationary effects of technology will rule, rule the day. And so the inflation will be trailer. I got that wrong. Okay. I don't think it's systemic like some of these people are saying, but it's just going to last longer than we think. Okay. And so now I'm sitting here with you and I will tell you that this will abate. I got it wrong by a win, not an if. The war will end. All wars do. This war will end. We just have to hope these guys don't decide to go nuclear, which would be really bad. And then the other thing I would say to you, which I think you already know already, is the supply chain will straighten itself out. They've made a decision, again, rightly or wrongly in China to go zero on their COVID policy. That's really hurting the supply chain. Can I recommend something to your viewers and listeners? Is that okay? There's totally. there's a there's something called trueflation.com. Um, I would recommend people to go to that website. It's an interesting project that is utilizing the blockchain and real-time data to print actual inflation rates. And if you go there and you take a look at their dashboard, you could see that they believe, trueflation.com believes that inflation right now is at 11.6%. But if you're studying it, it's trending down. Why is it trending down? Because things are starting to loosen up a little bit. The economy's starting to get more normalized. And so it's, it's trending there, uh, but it's probably heading back towards the 6 7 or 8%. And a year from now, it'll probably be in the two to three percent zone. Uh, you know, certainly the Fed has to raise rates, which has already shooken up the markets. Yeah. But the point being is that you could be sitting here 2024, rates are back down, the economy is booming, inflation is under control, and Web three, the thing that you and I talk about a lot, is way more real, way more substantial. 2024 could be the year where I pay you at the restaurant or I pay the restaurant tour on my smart wallet using a cryptocurrency or a stable coin. It's very possible when that happens. Okay. Just that's not Luna. A, that, yeah, it won't be Luna. But, but again, Luna needed the TIC on it. It needed mm. Lunatic because it was a misconceived project that was overly confident in algorithmic assumptions. But you know, here's the thing I will give these guys credit for, it was their transparency. Because they said, okay, here's our market cap, here's our reserves. Well, wait a minute, you don't have enough reserves to match your market cap. No, but that's okay, we have this algorithm that we're gonna use. And so somebody that was more capitalized than them could crush that and take it out. And that's the, that's the free enterprise system. That's what Schumpeter talked about with the creative destruction of the markets. If if Luna was that weak, then you know it, it would make sense that somebody would take it out. By the way, you know, George Soros in 1992, uh, when I think you were not yet born, um, almost he broke the British pound because it was also set up fragilely and it didn't have the right reserves. He got shorted and they couldn't hold their peg and the pound broke. I think he made a billion dollars. That was a lot of money back then. That's probably $3 billion today. 
you made a billion dollars in about 36 hours. So, so Frank, these things are fluid. You have to make a decision. The market sucks right now. It is a bear market. You could hand ring and capitulate, bang your head against the wall. Okay. There will be sell side analysts that say sell, 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 and they'll take their buy recommendations to sell right at the bottom. Okay. Which is always a good sign that something is bottoming. Okay. And that's where we are. But to me, I want to hang in there. I want to hang loose. And I want to remind my clients that, uh, you know, we have a, uh, a great long term macro theme that we're presenting to you. And by the way, I don't want you to miss it. You know, one of my clients said to me, I'm firing you. I can't believe you own Bitcoin. I went to see him. I said, I got a 3% exposure in your portfolio to Bitcoin. You know, why don't you take a chill? I've been doing this with you for 20 years. If I'm wrong at the end of the year, fire me. If I'm right, let's have a conversation. Okay. So we bought that Bitcoin from, I guess, at about 14,000. It was at the time, at the end of the year, I think it was 45,000. He said to me, okay, you know, you, I want to thank you for bringing me into the future. So we went from, he's going to fire me to thank me to being me in the future. It's now 30,000. Are you buying, are you buying right now? We bought it at 14. Incrementally, yes. I mean, I haven't sold one position unless we've had taxes to pay. I Mm -hmm. want to qualify that because I- I think I said on CNBC, we haven't sold anything. And then my CFO called me. Well, we had <laughs> we had to trim some things due to tax liability. Yeah. But I'm talking about our core positions have not been sold. If we got $100 million in today, we'd be buying it. You know, so yeah, so the answer is we are buying. Uh, we, and you're looking at other blockchains too. Like you're, yeah, you're absolutely. Kind of, with each one, you go through your own journey. Absolutely. Well, we passed on Luna, but we mm-hmm. own Solana. Solana's gotten crushed. We own Algorand. Algorand's gotten crushed. A lot of these layer ones went went down. With you know the babies got thrown out with the bathwater. But we own them. We like them. The use cases are proliferating. The developers are growing. The TVL on each of these sites growing. I don't see why these cannot be the software systems, the software protocol of the future. You know, and by the way, I'm old enough to remember the first pitch on the cloud. Okay, here's the pitch, Frank. All that confidential data on your server, put it on my server. What? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Everything you've got on your server, put it on my server. Ultimately, that's what the cloud is. And people were like, okay, well, that's nuts. And then people started to do it and they said, oh, wait a minute, this is actually safer because you know, you're trying to hack me. You don't know that my information is on Amazon Web Services or Oracle Web Services and they have probably more protections over there than I could myself. And they can do it for me at a much cheaper cost than I can build it myself. And then lo and behold, the cloud proliferated and has become this extraordinary growth opportunity in the world of technology. I think that's Web3. I think these chains, these protocols are going to be like the cloud. We'll probably use Ethereum for a lot of different things, the NFT market. Solana will be used for... uh, transaction speeds and things that need to be done quicker with lower gas fees. I'm of the belief that if you really study Algorand, that could be the financial services token. Mm -hmm. If it gets adopted and starts scaling because of its ability to have no downtime, its ability to be net carbon negative, 
there's a whole host of different things about the structure of Algorand that could lead it to be the sleeve of layer one for financial services. But again, I don't know. That's the cool thing about where we are right now. I know there'll probably be 15 of these protocols that make it. There will be 15 of them that are standards, if you will. I don't know which ones they'll be, but I'll tell you what, as as it starts to become clear, I want to own a lot of them. Yeah. Do you think that there's any any sort of risk that crypto poses to traditional financial markets? A lot of people in the wake of UST, Terra blowing up, have uh, pointed to potential risks around Tether. And if Tether were to collapse, there'd be some forced selling of Chinese paper or whatever they have backing their stable coin. So far, it's held up. There's been a bit of depegging, but is that a risk that people bring up to you or do you see it as any sort of risk? Yeah, yes. I mean, I mean, I, I'm going to say this to you and I think you'll appreciate this. The answer is no. I mean, I'm saying yes to the question in terms of addressing the question because in May of last year, uh, we had a 55% reduction in crypto prices, particularly Bitcoin. Was there systemic risk? There was not. Two weeks, we've wiped out $700 billion of capital. Is there systemic risk? There was not. So much so that Janet Yellen, the Secretary of Treasury, said there was not. Mm-hmm. And so I don't see this stuff as being that. If you're telling me, which is this whole space is now $1.3 trillion in assets, if you're telling me it's $15 trillion, it's six years from now, 10 years from now, and we're going to half or reduce the space by 90%, it will perhaps be more of a systemic risk. But it's not right now. It's the size of Apple Computer or Amazon in terms of where it is. It's not big enough to knock the Apple cart over. Yeah. It's funny how, you know, a lot of people, you know, who are crypto skeptics or anti-crypto will say, you know, it's irrelevant from one side of their mouth and from another side say it's going to bring down the entire financial market (laughs) or could at least. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. But but that but that also tells you how early we are. It tells you how excited you should be about where we are. It tells you that uh, you're going to be sitting here with me. Hopefully, you'll invite me onto your podcast. Your hair will have grown. My in hair will then. have grown back. Hopefully, you, you know Ryan Salam will have gotten you this uh, beautifully quaffed and curated uh, thing. Dean is now saying in the chat here that you may end I'm, up with the, Yeah, I'm running again at this point, so I have abs again. Yeah, you, but you may, you may end up with the porn mustache again. Okay, and we could be sitting here and the whole space is transformed. And, you know, people will say, wow, you guys are great. How did you see that? And my answer will always be, my humble answer will be, no, I didn't really see it. Okay, I was making a guesstimate. I was making a knowledgeable estimate of where I thought things were going, but I did have the strength and the courage and the backbone to stay with it. And I didn't allow myself to get shaken out of it. Are regulators going to turn around though? One prominent aspect of SALT was the presence of Tony Blair and Mm -hmm. former President Bill Clinton. Yes. Much to the chagrin of maybe some of the more um, libertarian aspects of the market. I took a lot of flack on Twitter for having those guys there. Look, look, I mean- But but are they coming around I do think the regulators are going to turn around because 70 plus million people own crypto in the United States. That's like a decentralized lobbying organization. 
I think that the pressure on them will be overwhelming. The money is flowing from the crypto executives into the lobbying community to lobby yeah. the Congress. Congress needs money to stay elected. Um, so I do think it's going to turn around. But I also think that, as I said, smart regulators will look at the anti-fragility of decentralization and say, you know, this is probably a better way than the 90-year-old rail system known as the central banking oligopoly of money center and regional banks. I will say one thing that's interesting about crypto is whenever there are these like blowups or schemes or you know any type of you know nefarious actor or unstable actor it kind of gets shaken out relatively quickly compared to traditional markets like it yes. took years for the housing crisis to sort of percolate and yes. then blow up whereas i mean the luna thing probably one of the most one of the most historic blowups in crypto history unraveled in what Four days? Yeah, four or five trading days <laughs> uh, took out. But but you know, you could look at it different ways. You could say, okay, oh, that's a disaster. This is horrific. The industry sucks, right? Or you could flip it around and you could say, oh my God, look at how this thing sustained itself during that debacle. So when are you going to go, are you ever going to go full crypto? I'm pretty much full crypto. You know, I mean, honestly, the- uh, you know, I, I, I've got half of the assets in crypto. If we're right, you know, I'm not selling the, my remaining assets that are not in crypto, but I just want you to think about They're that. just going to get dwarfed. Yeah. If we go five to one on my, you know, if Bitcoin goes $150,000 and you call me, I'll tell you, well, you know, we've got, you know, 20% of our assets in non-crypto. If it goes to $500,000, I'm going to tell you, well, we got 5% of our assets in non-crypto, you know? You know, so we're we're basically a crypto shop at this point. Well, hopefully, we're um, if we get to five hundred thousand, we'll be doing the show from my private island. Private island, right? You're not going to go to Mars with Elon? No, 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 no. Definitely yeah, not. So I'm not. A, I'm yeah, not I don't want to be in space. No, uh, you're terrestrial. Like you're a typical Italian. Now, way not, too Italian. You can not, barely get me get, in an you're airplane. Not going to get good cannolis on Mars right now. Okay. Yeah, I'm exactly. No Shfilia Dell on uh, you know, Jupiter. Yeah, um, yeah not going to happen. So what are you, <laughs> what are you um, looking forward to for the rest of the year? Well, I mean, we have our SALT conference coming up, FTX SALT conference coming up in New York. Uh, we're going to do a conference in Singapore in November. So we have a September uh, New York conference, a November Singapore conference. And I'm looking forward to the back end of this year where I do think that there'll be more economic activity. I'm going to be bold to suggest that a cash Bitcoin ETF will happen sometime this year. Uh, and I think that's going to open up a floodgate of activity from formerly resistant, reluctant financial institutions to come into the space. And where can we learn? Where can our audience learn more about what you're working on at SALT? Okay, it's very simple. You go to at SALT Conference on Twitter. You go to at Skybridge or at Scaramucci. I also do a podcast on my own, which you're going to be forced to be a guest on called Mooch point. FM. I'm going to reach out to you for that. We interview a lot of fun people there. And uh, I'm reachable uh, at those places. You can email them, guys. You can just shoot Anthony and a you message. Know I'm an accessible guy. I'm very easy <laughs> to find. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great to be on, Frank. I got to tell you, though, lift up the hat, though. Let's show everybody I what know. the damage the, that got done. This is what 
what we're okay. dealing with. I'll, will, I'll tweet a picture out. My good buddy and now a joint venture business partner, Ryan. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to him about getting you the right haircut. I'm next sure you can year. help me find someone to help me yes. dye it in New York as well. Yeah, yeah. We got to do both of those things. All right. All right, yeah. sir. God bless you, brother. Take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us. We'll be back with another great guest. Have an awesome day.